So Rebels Manifesto is I basically took the 25 thorniest issues that I could find, controversial issues that many people don't want to talk about. Whether it's this morning, I was in a small classroom where I still teach a high school class. We were talking about poverty, talking about gun control, transgender, race. It's written for students, but a tool for parents to use to engage in that third step of having conversations with their kids or in some kind of, you know, a church or a small group setting. The name, people wonder, why would you call it Rebels Manifesto? Well, in writing this book, it really hit me that the idea of what it means to be a rebel has changed. If we go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, in the 50s, some rock and roll was protesting racial injustice. In the 60s, it might have been uh, in the war or certain racial injustice. In the 70s, probably the war. In the 80s, rock in the dress and the sound recognized and kind of stood for being a contrarian and a rebel. And it hit me that rock and roll has really lost its cultural force and authority that it used to have, partly because of smartphones. Everybody's shouting. Everybody's in your face. We kind of have a cancel culture now. So the rebel is somebody who says, you know what? Instead of polarizing, I'm going to find common ground. Instead of demonizing, I'm going to reach out and show the love of Jesus and find a way to advance a Christian worldview, even on the thorniest issues while speaking truth, but doing it lovingly. That's really what a rebel is today. Hello folks, welcome to The Disciple Dilemma. An apologetic disciple? What in the world is that? How does that work? What a treat we have today. With us is Professor Sean McDowell, a follower of Christ, husband, dad, professor, podcaster, author, apologist, and even a high school teacher. Sean's going to unpack a lot of things that have to do with what does it mean to be a disciple in the area of having an answer for the reason, for the hope that's within you. What a terrific conversation we're going to have today. I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. We were delighted to be able to have Sean with us. Grateful you come along as well. Let's listen in as Raymond and I pick it up with Sean. Raymond, thanks for being with us today on The Disciple Dilemma. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks. I'm in the room with two PhDs. This is kind of scary. At least one's on the other side of the digital divide. And over here we have Professor Sean McDowell, follower of Christ. He is a husband. He is a dad. He is a professor at Biola. He is an apologist. He's an author. He's a podcaster and a high school teacher as well. Dr. Sean McDowell, thank you for being with us on The Disciple Dilemma. Dennis and Raymond, this is a treat. I've been looking forward to it for a while model most people have for an apologist is you're on a debating stage and you just eviscerate the other guy. You just cut him to shreds. And when we look at the comments, a lot of the people who follow you are hopeful that they can cut people to threads. And so mm-hmm. how do you really, how do you really do apologetics in love? How do you, is it that you really deal with controversial issues in a way that's not polarizing and tribal? So I have no desire in trying to shame somebody, humiliate somebody, win an argument for the sake of winning an argument. Now, when my dad debated, he's done about 250 debates. He doesn't debate formally anymore. His goal was to shred an argument, but love the person that he was debating. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Now, my my channel is not so much debating. I have two goals. Now, these goals in particular, when I bring on people, I've brought on atheists, I brought on agnostics, 
I've had on a couple of progressive Christians. I've had on uh, a lady who described herself as this is her term. She said the OG lesbian YouTube creator. She's for 12 years been creating YouTube channels, uh, YouTube videos. I have two goals, clarity and charity. I want clarity of issues. This is something Dennis Prager talks about a lot. He goes, I just want to know where we differ and why. And there's a lot of value in that. And I want to show charity to the person that I brought on. Now, some conversations I push back more than others, and it depends upon the subject. It depends upon my guest. We always agree ahead of time on the nature of where the conversation is going to go. I've seen some people go on shows and you can tell that the host is just piling on, asking unexpected stuff. And I just think that's not a Christian way to treat somebody. So interestingly enough, uh, I do a lot of videos where I'll interview people. Here's the evidence for the resurrection, evidence for the Bible. So I do positive apologetics as well, but I really just want to model for people. What does it mean to sit down and listen? What does it mean to understand? What does it mean to find common ground, but also just clarify where differences are and have a longer term view with people in relationship? That's just the focus of my channel. And I enjoy it. And part of that is I'm a professor. I'm not a pastor in a church. I'm a professor. So it's my job to explore ideas and invite people on to see the world differently. So the best compliment I guess I get from people is people say, you know, I saw that interview and I went out and had a conversation with my neighbor or with some atheist across town or with somebody else who is in a different political party. In our world of division, if we just focus on listening, understanding, bringing clarity and charity, it's amazing how many positive conversations we can have. And then guess what? There's a lot of people that follow my stuff, that appreciate my tone, and then they watch the evidence for the resurrection. They hear the evidence for the Bible. They hear the positive apologetics as well because of how I try to treat people. I would like for you to um, talk to the every man for just a minute, every woman, the the regular folks in the pews, the regular folks who are believers in Christ, because there's this, um, speaking from personal experience, I look at uh, the professional apologist, the trained apologist. You know, it's smooth, it flows well, your content's there. And, you know, Sean, look, I'm, I'm just a regular person going through a regular <laughs> life, and I've got some person next to me here who doesn't want to hear about the gospel, but they do think I'm kind of a flake if I do believe in the gospel. My question to you is, how does the professor, how does Sean McDowell think every man ought to integrate apologetics into his regular day-to-day -day life? What does it look and feel like for the regular guy? So I love this question because apologetics is not a spiritual gift. It's not just for pastors. It's just not for podcasters like you guys are or like I am. It's not for Bible teachers. We are all called to be ready with an answer. Now, some of us have more time to study than others. Some of us maybe have more of an inclination than others, but we're all called to be ready with an answer. So for the person who just says, I'm busy, I don't have time to go get a master's in this, I'd say maybe add a podcast or two that helps you learn how to defend your faith. Maybe just get one book you read this fall. Maybe just 
try to say, how do I up loving God with my mind and be ready with an answer? And just one small way that will start to give you confidence. The other thing is you don't have to have the answers. A lot of what I do is just ask questions. Anybody can ask questions. And there's different kinds of listening when you ask questions. There's listening where I'm preparing a response to show you wrong or listening to really try to understand. And I actually listen a lot to really understand where's somebody coming from. I get curious. I ask them questions. And then I see if there's a natural connection with faith or I also gauge if they're interested. So the way you framed it, Dennis, is I'm sitting next to somebody who doesn't care about the gospel. I don't feel the need to force it if they don't care and they're not open. And sometimes I say certain things to gauge whether people are open or not. If they are, I go there. If they're not, I don't force it on somebody. So bottom line, anybody can say, I'm going to pick up a book or two. I'm going to listen to a podcast or two when I'm working out, driving. I can just begin to get better at this part of my life because we're all called to do it. And then just look for natural opportunities to listen, to ask questions. And if somebody turns around and says, well, what do you do with contradictions of the Bible? And you don't have an answer. You just say, that's really a good answer. I Let me give this a little bit of thought and I'll get back to you. And now you're having a conversation that's ongoing. And guess what? When people step out and start having these conversations, apologetics is going to come up. How can you believe in three gods? Why does God allow evil? How can you say Jesus resurrected? Hasn't science disproved miracles? Once you start having these spiritual conversations, apologetic questions will come up and that's going to create a need and a desire to go get answers. And that's how you grow and you learn. So if there's one thing, just ask questions, listen well, look for a hook for the gospel. And if somebody's interested, pursue it and start a spiritual conversation. This whole idea that you just brought up was what Akka was pounding into us. By the way, I want to thank you and your dad for really charitable, loving treatment of a very awkward, difficult situation with Akka. We're fans of those people over there. We love them. A lot of damage has been done, and you guys have done a great job of being ambassadors for Christ. And I thank you for that, Sean. Thank you. Uh, and so to go back to your point earlier about the understanding of the relationship, the thing they were pounding into our head, which I think I'm hearing from you is until you understand the other person's true issue behind the question, the question's really irrelevant. The relationship is what you're trying to reach for and connect with, even if it's a small, tenuous relationship and build forward from there. I love that. The one of the things I think about is what is the question behind the question? Sometimes when somebody says contradictions in the Bible, they really just want to know because they're doubting their faith or that's a barrier to faith. Sometimes that's it. Sometimes it's deeper. I met a young man who was talking about contradictions in the Bible. We went on and on. Finally, I said, I just have a hard time believing this is really your issue. He basically said, I'm going to a fraternity in the fall. I just want to have fun in my life. I said, okay, now, now we're talking. For you, you just think Christianity steals all your funds, so you don't want to believe that it's true. That's one case. I had a conversation with a young man who asked me a question about same-sex marriage. 15 minutes later, I was the first person he shared with that he had same-sex attraction. And really the question was not what is Genesis 19 or Leviticus 18 or Romans 1 say, but will I be loved? Will I be cared for if I share this? I had a conversation with a lady that asked about evil and suffering. And really it wasn't some abstract question. 
It was personal suffering and pain in her life. So there's a proverb that talks about the purposes in a man's heart are deep and a person of wisdom draws it out. So I just want to know by listening and by asking questions, what's the root of the issue through God's spirit, through wisdom? And then let's address that. Sometimes it's intellectual. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's relational. Sometimes it's moral. But you get there by asking good questions and just listening. And by the way, that's why 1 Peter 3.15 says, you know, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready with an answer when somebody asks. Well, that's kind of assuming that somebody asks. And if we lead with asking questions and showing genuine interest in others, if people are interested, more often than not, they'll ask back and you'll get a chance to share. One of the great objections in life is I don't want to be caught with I don't know. Would you talk for a minute about how you would coach some of your students about the idea of the power, the value, and the relationship behind I don't know? Yeah. So my dad told me, he goes, son, there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know to a question, but don't say I don't know to the same question twice. (laughs) That's a good point. There's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. It's honest. At times that I say I don't know, I think people will give you some credit. You'll gain some credibility because they'll think, oh, he's not overstepping his bounds. When he does speak, he at least thinks that he knows. So when somebody asks me a question, if I'm on stage or doing an interview, and my answer is I don't know, I'm going to go back and find a satisfying answer so that doesn't happen again. Now, of course, for me, before I enter into a lot of these conversations or discussions or debates, I'm trying to anticipate everything I'm going to be asked and every conceivable objection. So I'm not in that position in debate. But in normal life, people ask me stuff all the time. And I more often than people would think, just say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Let me think about that and get back to you. So it's wise, it's honest. In fact, I think today what happens sometimes with parents and kids, or this is true for pastors or Bible teachers, if we say we do know, and then kids Google it, or they search and find something else that's actually true, you lose credibility by saying you know something that you don't. So I think it's honest. I think it's wise. And I think it actually helps to just say you don't know. Oh, I, I think that's really clever. I had a I had a mentor in the technology field. I'm an engineer by training. So I do, I'm with steel foundries. I work with the people who melt steel and make casting. It's fun. And a colleague of mine who was a technical guy who was really a mentor to me told me when we'd go into a place and they'd start asking questions, first you would give them the information you knew that would give some guidance to help them solve their problem. Then they would press because they want more information. And so you begin to speculate about different possibilities that they could explore and tests they could do to try and work it out. And then they'd be unhappy with that because what they really want is that silver bullet answer. So they press you one more time. And his response is, look, I've already told you more than I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is great. And I I love it. sometimes, Sometimes when people are pressing these philosophical or theological questions, we need to say, look, I've already told you more than I know about this subject when you're dealing with those fundamental questions. Mm. Professor Sean McDowell, you have a classroom full of fascinating students. And for 
uh, a lot of people watching this podcast, the question is going to be, what's Generation Z like? What's going on in their heads? What do they think about? How, how do, what, what can you give us in sort of a brief fashion about what you're hearing, seeing, and feeling from this generation that's in front of you? So I actually teach three different levels. Most of my classes are grad classes in the master's in apologetics. So these are like 25 and up, millennials and up, mostly. We're getting some Gen Zers seeping into that because your typical Gen Z is like 25 or younger. I teach one undergrad class at Biola on apologetics, worldview, evangelism. And I still teach one high school class three mornings a week where my kids go. I'm going to have my daughter in class next week. So- the high school and the college class are total Gen Zers. And I would just say a few big observations. Uh, number one, I think Gen Zers, now this is different. I would say our students at Biola are unique because of the kind of education that they are getting, mm-hmm. deeply seeped in a biblical worldview. But I would say, and this isn't just true for Gen Zers, have far more of a secular worldview than they realize. And I have to unpeel it back and show that to them. So here's an example. Just this morning, I have 10 high school students, three mornings a week. We're working through the book that you mentioned, Rebels Manifesto, and we were on the chapter on poverty. So I wrote on the board, I said, what is poverty? And they gave a definition that said, uh, poverty is when you have a lack of physical or physiological things. And I said, what does that assume about what it means to be human? And they said, it assumes that humans are just physical, just material. That's a Marxist naturalistic worldview. I said, what does the Bible say about what it means to be human? You are body and you are soul. What if lacking material gain or things is one part of poverty? But what if there's relational poverty and emotional poverty and spiritual poverty? And we had a wonderful conversation trying to help them see that they had bought a naturalistic, secular view of poverty without even realizing it. That is most of our Gen Z kids, Dennis and Raymond. I'm telling you, when you press them on love, you press them on truth. They don't filter culture through the scriptures without realizing it. They filter the scriptures through culture. And that's why Gen, the Barna studies would show that 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview in the way that they define it. That's why Gene Twenge's book on iGen says we have a truly secular generation. And so that's one thing is when I approach this generation, I, th- I know that they have been wired to see the world through a profoundly secular lens and I have to unpeel it. Second, I also find this generation really wants to talk. They really want to engage. They want to talk about issues that matter. They're open to it. In fact, they feel relieved when I just say, there's nothing you can say that's going to make me blush. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about whatever it issue is. And they can't. I'm a McDowell. My dad raised me talking about these kinds of issues. <laughs> just It really doesn't bother me. And it's like a breath of fresh air that adults are willing to step into their world and engage these issues. So yes, they're distracted with smartphones. But when I say, put your smartphones down, I want to know what you think. Let's talk about this. This generation really comes alive. So the one word that describes this generation obviously is digital. They're truly a digitally native generation. They've been swiping smartphones 
and uh, tablets before they could read and talk. We still don't know how that's going to affect a generation. If you want to understand how they see the world, it's through the lens of a smartphone. But as a whole, I am hopeful on Gen Z. I think the largest recent study from Barna called the Open Generation said worldwide, Gen Z has a largely positive view of Jesus. They're curious about Jesus. They're open to the evidence about Jesus. And a large segment are open to spiritual things. So that's a few things, but I love Gen Z. I'm hopeful about Gen Z. And uh, yet we have some challenges as well. Folks, we are talking with a guy with a Spidey phone whose <laughs> rap sheet also includes being a follower of Christ, a husband, a dad, a professor of Biola, an author, a podcaster, an apologist, and I think now also I can throw on that same rap sheet a high school teacher as well. <laughs> so when we come back, we're going to get Sean McDowell, Professor Sean McDowell, to give us 30-second answers to everything you ever wanted to know about. Stay <laughs> with us. Our opening question to Sean as we start out is, how do apologetics and discipleship go together with our kids? How do we talk to them? Have genuine spiritual conversations with our kids about relevant cultural, theological, spiritual issues. So live out the faith, build relationships, have spiritual conversations. So what do you think they really long for? What is it that they're searching for? Is it meaning and purpose in life? Is it community? Is it safety? Those are the three common things people talk about in terms of Gen Z. What's been your experience with what's really the longing of their heart? So let me frame this because I'm a professor and this is my job. Uh, we live in an age of identity politics, right? That I can reduce you down to your sex, your socioeconomic status, your race, your sexual orientation, and we focus on these differences that we have. Now, some of those categories, or whether it's you're a boomer or you're a Gen Z or you're a millennial, et cetera, these can be helpful hooks to understand the world, but they tend to focus on our differences and lead to division rather than unity. So when I speak on Gen Z, I make two points. I say, number one, uh, you have far more in common with this generation than you do differences. They want the same deep things that you do. Human nature has not and never will change. So that means belonging. That means purpose. That means identity. Now, how that looks today is maybe different because we're told your identity is in your, say, your sexual orientation. So the way we're told that identity is found is less in the church, in your family. It's more internally to how you feel. So the way somebody's told to ground their identity has maybe shifted. But the need for identity and belonging and purpose and ultimately relationships has never changed and it will never change. And frankly, when I say that, I see a lot of adults feel like, okay, Gen Z are not aliens. They're not totally other. Maybe I don't know why they dress. I don't know why they text the way that they do, if they even text anymore. But I can reach and love and disciple them. Gen Z is eager for older generations to say, you matter to me, and I'm going to step into your life and care for you. 
and help you be everything that God has designed you to be. Now, aren't you concerned? I'm certainly concerned about the lack of biblical literacy. Even in main churches, we're more concerned with giving them experiences about Jesus than biblical literacy. And so it really seems to me that it's going to be difficult as we move forward when people don't have the basic sort of biblical stuff in their head to think about. Yes, I'm concerned, but not just with Gen Z. That is with the entire church today. In many ways, what we see in this generation in the church is a reflection of what we as a church are doing positive or doing negative. It's more of a mirror about us. So I think, and I'm, I, I know you're not saying this, you would agree with this, but when we look at Gen Z, it's like, here's the problem with them. I say, the first thing we got to do is look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how are we living out a Christian worldview? How, what relationships have we built with this generation? How are we intentionally teaching them? And that's where I agree hundred percent. So many times we're concerned with just having a good experience. We're concerned with numbers. We're concerned with entertaining. The way I, I put it, I wrote a book with a friend of mine, a former, he's still actually a cold case detective. He was an atheist until 35. He examined the gospels and was convinced that they're reliable testimony before he even understood what the gospels meant. Super, super interesting story. And he told me, he says, we need to stop teaching and we need to start training. So teaching is just imparting information. He said, but in the police force, when we train, you know you need to learn because you are going out, getting into the battle, so to speak, and this stuff matters. So the problem is in the church, we're just teaching. What I, what I started doing is taking students on places like Berkeley and we bring in atheists and agnostics, taking students to Salt Lake City and we go knock on doors and engage Mormons. Now they'd have to train because this stuff matters. I think we need to just shift our thinking, which I know is the heart of your question from just numbers, entertainment, certain experiences and feelings to saying, this is true. Here's how we know it's true. Doctrine matters, but let's go put it into practice because when you put it into practice, then you really start to own it. In the, in the preface of, of the reviews of your book, The Rebel, it, it says that we live in the hardest time to be a disciple. And I found that to be an a, a, a confusing statement at, at best because nobody's coming trying to kill me. No, no one's putting me in prison. And so what would make this the hardest time to be a disciple? Yeah, I don't know if I remember saying it's the hardest time, like in the history of the church. I would agree with you that during certain seasons of persecution, or like if you're living in North Korea, obviously it's harder than being a disciple in America. I was making a contrast of how technology changes things. So just, just in the palm of the hands, young people have more exposure to ideas and belief systems they never have before. That raises that can raise cynicism about truth, questions about what I can know. There's more moral challenges coming through a smartphone than ever before, whether it's pornography or other temptations like that. And we're just seeing a mental health crisis with this generation. And it's not all on smartphones, but you better believe social media plays a role in that. 
So I think maybe if I worded it the way you said, I would go back and word it differently. But I mean, a sense of unprecedented times of how social media and this digital revolution changes everything. How do we how do we get the active love one another community sort of restored within the institution of the church so that it becomes the most attractive place to be and give people a sense of belonging? Two things that might help. My dad said something to me years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, son, don't practice what you preach. Preach what you practice. Brilliant. It is brilliant. Like, in other words, I don't want to just practice what I'm telling you you should do. I should be preaching out of my own life, my successes and my failures. So when I hear Bible study leaders and youth pastors and senior pastors doing evangelism, feeding the poor, trying to actively live out the Christian life, and then they say, hey, come with me as I follow Jesus. That's a bottom-up approach that changes things. So sometimes we get so stuck on top-down approaches. Let's do this curriculum. Let's do this program. I think sometimes in the local church, a bottom-up approach can even be more effective. So anybody who has influence, if you want somebody else to do it, do it yourself first, model it, share your successes, share your failures, and invite other people along with you. And on top of that, I think this kind of change does take place. This isn't to contradict, but to emphasize it. It really does take place from the top down in terms of emphasis. So if a pastor says, all right, in our church, apologetics matters and puts resources there and puts an emphasis there, then you say that from the pulpit, people get on board. If along with that, a pastor also says, we're going to be really focused on loving and caring for our community in very practical ways, and we're going to equip you to do this, and emphasizes that from the top down, and then, like I said, models it, then you start to see that bottom-up change within small groups, within churches, and then ultimately a wider kind of change. Sean, I'm, I'm curious about a challenge that we basically used to form this podcast. The, the, the conversations that we're having right now are about discipleship and a tremendous amount of concern that we have about the statistics, such as Barna's report on 59% of millennials walking out of the church and even after they have kids not coming back, the nuns and the duns, that eight out of 10 people in the Protestant pews have no spiritual life, no prayer life, they have no fellowship, they attend church 1.7 times a month, statistics like 90% of people in Protestant pews are saying, I'm not equipped and it's Sean's job to answer questions and I don't even really want to talk about Christ. And 35% saying, I'm not even sure Jesus is Christ. You just said something that I think is the number one missing element as we look at the research in discipleship. And that is taking people in very small groups out into the real world, the training. I think you were referring to Jay Warner Wallace, your friend's Jay Warner Wallace. That's Yeah, talking. yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're doing something weird, and I just want to get this on tape. Are you telling me, Sean, you actually take human beings out as disciples to places like everywhere, including Salt Lake City, and knocking on doors and letting them experience real life as Christians encountering real people? Do you do that? 
I do, but let me frame why. I think what we need to do in discipleship is inoculate students and people, give them a vaccine, so to speak, for the kind of challenges and threats that are coming in the future. Now, traditionally, what was a kind of vaccine? Some are, they give you a little bit of something, enough to build up your antibodies without you getting sick. There's something wise about that. So one response from the church is, I'm going to shut out the world, not talk about it, not watch any movies, not talk with anybody with a different belief system. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. The other is just to say uncritically, I'm going to imbibe everything in the culture, not have any boundaries or wisdom how I engage. I think we should be in the world, but not of it and wisely engage the culture. So yeah, recently, I, I mean, gosh, recently, this is probably six or eight years ago now that I think about it. Uh, I was with a pastor and our kids were walking by this Jehovah's Witnesses booth and my kids and his kids went up to get some literature and he shooed his kids away. Like, don't get that. That's a cult. I told my son, I'm like, get it. He's like, really? I said, yeah, let's talk about it. Bring it in. What does it say? Is this right about Jesus? Was he Michael, the archangel? Is it right about the Trinity? To me, I'm like, I'm not afraid of that. Uh, let's bring it in and talk about it. I had my 10-year-old son interest in Jesus. What is a cult, dad? They're out here teaching false things. It created a great conversation. So that's my philosophy. We've done this for years with junior high and high school students. We go, like I said, to places like Berkeley, and we've gone to places like Salt Lake City and have our students go out to engage those with different belief systems. We brought in some leading atheists. Now, we always debrief it with our students. We always train them going into it. Now, if somebody's not, my friend Brett Kunkel at Maven Truth actually plans and takes churches on these kinds of trips. I don't take other churches, but Brett, along with Jay Warren Wallace, had this idea at the beginning and will take groups on it. So if I was in a small group of church, I would have them taking me out on trips for sure. It's game changing for students. But I'm always looking for ways to get folks out of their comfort zone to engage people, even if it's in the classroom with high school students. Let's use an atheist book, not just a Christian book. Use it wisely. That piques their interest and it takes away the lure of the forbidden fruit and just shows I'm not afraid of these ideas. You have a, uh, a really interesting concept that you're setting on the table. 2% of the churches that we've surveyed so far, we've got a database of about 500 churches that we surveyed. Hmm. 2%, so as in like 10, hmm. have any sort of effort to build wingman relationships in discipleship, where these people actually understand that it's not just simply Sunday school, a sermon, small group, mission trip. It is actually every day of our life. It's vocation in what I do, what I'm called. It is my skills, my equipping, but it is in life with someone else alongside me, so I'm not running solo. You have had a lot of experience across a number of academic environments. Do you see in the seminaries pastors and agendas that are helping leaders understand the idea of building that culture of not only large learning, but wingmen pairing up people as we might do so in today's modern world to go forward. Is that 
out there at Biola? Is that out there in the seminaries or is that kind of uh, a lost thing under the rubble of culture? I can't speak to a lot of seminaries. I'm not sure what other schools do, but at Talbot, we are very intentional about mentoring our students. Now, this looks different for different students in different programs. A lot of our apologetics program, some students will do it totally from a distance. Mm. So we'll do our best within that through the chat room, through Zoom calls, through feedback. Like, it, you know, we can't mentor them exactly like we would in the flesh, but we are modeling for them, mentoring them as we can, not just giving information and dropping them. But even in our apologetics program, there's a spiritual formation component that's included within that. So they have certain ties to their own spiritual health and also to discipleship. So I bet most evangelical schools are doing this. I just can't speak for others, but at Talbot, you know, and again, it's just a season. People come to us two years, three years, maybe four years. We're very relational in how we approach. We want to model with our students, be present with them. And we have professors who are out doing this. I mean, I don't just teach on apologetics. I'm having these conversations. I want to go places. I'll often take students with me and say, hey, I'm going along. Do you want to go with me and kind of mentor them as I go out? So mm -hmm. you asked earlier, I think one of the probably the biggest problem with discipleship is we just haven't taught people how to do it. They honestly don't know how. It feels like here's another program you have to do, and it's like flossing. They'll try it after they go to the dentist for a week or two and then stop and feel guilty that they don't. But if we give people, and this is just, this is part of what I try to do is say, here's whatever resource it is, you can do this embedded within the life you're already living. If you'll just see things a little differently, take different opportunities, shift your thinking this is more doable than you realize. That's why I think a lot of people don't actually even disciple others. They literally don't even know how to do it. Sean, there's a lot of folks that are watching this that probably are already well-connected with you. But if we've got folks that are going, holy mackerel, I, I, need to, I need to listen to Sean more. I want to hear more. How do you want people to connect so they can get on the train with you? Well, these days there's so many different ways to communicate, but probably once or twice a week, I'll have the YouTube uh, video. I love my channel's really grown. It's fun. And that's more apologetics worldview. I do a lot on like reaching Gen Z as well. And I'll bring skeptics on a progressive Christian. So that's one avenue. Uh, we have a podcast called Think Biblically out of Biola that I co-host. It's weekly. And there's some apologetics, but it's broader. We've talked about discipleship specifically. We've talked about evangelism, cultural issues. Uh, those are two veins. My my website, seanmcdowell.org, pretty much links to everything, whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, even have a TikTok account. There's some books and curricula that are there, but probably the place to start would be seanmcdowell.org. has my blog there as well. But just so people know, I don't just try to entertain. I don't have time for that stuff. I want to equip and disciple and train people. So I might do funny videos now and then just because it's fun and I think you can enjoy it. But I want people to come to my different channels and say, I got value out of that. That was helpful. That encouraged me. That equipped me. That's kind of my philosophy of how I use these different platforms. So folks, you're seeing SeanMcDowell.org on the screen as we're talking about this, and we're also showing you pictures of Rebels Manifesto, so you can see that book. Sean, do you want to say anything 
to the crew about what's coming on the next book? Just a teaser? Uh, sure. It's actually not long out. It's a book called Evidence for Jesus. And my dad and I took the Evidence That Demands a Verdict book, sure. took the part about Jesus and kind of shortened it down. So chapters are like 1,500 words, four to five pages, updated it a little bit for classrooms, for small groups, for individual studies. Because the evidence book, if I've actually got it right here. I mean, this book is so big. It's just massive. It can be intimidating for people. So the next book is just a smaller, concise, easy to use and study book called Evidence for Jesus that's coming out. When will that come out? Uh, actually, the end of April. Well, first of all, uh, Raymond Monroe, thank you for being with us on The Disciple Dilemma, co-hosting and bringing the intellectual temperature up with <laughs> the room. It was great fun, great fun. And Sean is so impressive. I'm just delighted to spend some time with him. It's great. Mm -hmm. We are, we are, uh, we say this not just to embarrass you, but we would like to embarrass you too. We just really are grateful <laughs> for you and your family's ministry over the years, both for us when we actually were young back in the 1800s. And then also for the work that you're doing today to equip a wide range of people. Sean McDowell, thank you for being with us on The Disciple Dilemma. Dennis and Raymond, really appreciate you guys. You're having a great ministry here. Thanks for having me on and just being so encouraging and equipping the church. What a terrific conversation with Professor Josh McDowell about apologetics and discipleship. Folks, help us get the word out that discipleship has been hacked and we've got to get leadership tuned back up to the biblical model Jesus gave us. Please follow us, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, Rumbly, the RSS feeds, we're out there. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.